I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Inigo Garcia Bryce, a professor of history at New Mexico State University since 1999, whose research focuses on Latin America, especially Peru, where he grew up. His books include Crafting the Republic, Lima's Artisans and Nation Building in Peru, 1821 to 1879, published in 2004, and Aya de la Torre and the Pursuit of Power in 20th Century Peru and Latin America, published in 2017. He was director of NMSU's Center for Latin American and Border Studies from 2011 to 2016. He speaks English, Spanish, and French fluently, and has also some proficiency in Quechua, Latin, Italian, Portuguese, and German. So, Inigo, uh, welcome to the show, and uh, welcome back to the show since you were around about a year ago, talking about uh, race in Latin America. Thank you. It's great to be here, and I hope we're not going to have to do the interview in Latin. Oh, okay. Well, maybe <laughs> next time. <laughs> It's really an impressive list. I know that you're very modest about it. That the last several you're saying it's only some proficiency, but still, it's uh, it's very cool. When I was getting the PhD uh, in history, no, actually, now I'm getting confused. I I got a master's in Latin American studies, and one of the things that we had to do as Spanish speakers was to take a course in Portuguese. We had a, there was a course for Portuguese for Spanish speakers. Uh, I see. Well, of course, there's a lot in common between those languages, even though they sound different. Yeah, and and it, it was tricky because some, even though in some ways it makes it easier, there are also there are also things where it makes it more difficult because you make the assumption that something means one thing in Spanish and it will mean something completely different in Portuguese. Yeah, so I think knowing a lot of languages can be a lot of fun. It is. It is a lot of fun, as well as a source of embarrassment, potentially. So uh, later in the interview, we'll talk about your thoroughly researched biography of Victor Raúl Aya de la Torre, the leader of the Peruvian political movement APRA, which stands for the American Popular Revolutionary Alliance, uh, that he, which he led for over 50 years. But first, let's get a little background about your personal connection to Peru and then an overview of some of the key elements of uh, Latin American history as it pertains to U.S. involvement. So let's let's start though with your own background. You're not only multilingual, but you're multicultural too, and I think that probably is helpful in getting a kind of semi-outsider, outsider yet insider perspective on things. I I guess so. My my mom is from the U.S. She's American and Jewish, and my father from Peru and Catholic. So there were a lot of different cultures and religions going on at the same time. And I I grew up pretty much comfortable in both, I would say, in that I grew up bilingual. I, I would speak English to my mother and Spanish to my father. And we also, although I grew up in Peru, were fortunate to be able to travel a fair amount to visit my mom's family here in the U.S., in Boston specifically. And when you're a child, you adapt easily to things. And so I think I got comfortable with, with sort of being both in the U.S. and in Peru. So was your whole childhood in Peru? Yes. Until, until when? 16, yeah, until I went, I, I left to go to college. Wow, you were young when you went to college. I, I was young for my class, and I, I did. I, I, I was young. I, 
There's a disjuncture actually between the school year in, in Peru and here because we end the school year in December and college starts here in September. And I, I actually started college, I guess, when I was 17. But I took six months and went to France, and that's where I was able to really learn French well. And, and you went to uh, school at Harvard, right? Undergraduate yes. school, so they're, been, they're in Boston. Yes. And so you had relatives there already. Yes, yes, that's right. That sounds really nice. Yeah, it felt it felt familiar to me, just because I'd been running around there before as a child, <laughs> watching people throw frisbees in the green um, quads. And then, of course, you have no accent in English, so uh, it must have been fairly easy to fit in, I would think. Yes, yes. Although I did once get a strange comment from a student evaluation saying that it was hard to understand Professor Garcia Bryce because of his thick accent. No kidding. I've always been puzzled by that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And you grew up in Lima? Yes, Lima, which is the capital and one of these sort of Latin American mega cities that has a third of the population. So for you, Boston was a small city. Yes. It, it, somehow it, it, didn't, it didn't feel small, but then as I, as I realized later, it was much smaller than Lima. Well, thank you for that uh, bit of background. Let's uh, move on now and talk about the U.S. involvement in Latin America. You were just explaining to me earlier that the U.S. really didn't intervene much in Peru. And from what I've learned recently and not so recently, uh, that the U.S. involvement in Latin America was heaviest in the regions closest to the U.S., meaning Central America and the Caribbean. But certainly there was some some influence in uh further south as well. Oh yes, absolutely. And it and it and it also depended on the country. Uh probably the best known case is Chile in when a socialist Salvador Allende was elected in 1970 and the Nixon administration was very unhappy about this and the CIA get, got involved in helping to promote a coup in 1973 which which ended with with Allende's death and also the beginnings of a, a right-wing military dictatorship Augusto Pinochet and if if people are familiar with anything in Latin America that might be those might be some names that people are familiar with but and the US certainly had a hand in that especially in financing this was very undercover CIA yeah, operations because uh, by 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 this point it wasn't it wasn't well regarded for the U.S. to intervene directly. So these were sort of secret CIA interventions where they were helping to finance. For example, uh, one of the things that helped bring the government down was strikes, um, transportation strikes, and um, the CIA was helping to finance that. Those those strikes and they were also involved in other operations there. Yeah, I think that probably uh, baby boomers such as myself uh, remember some of those events, but uh, people younger than that, uh, it's it's sort of ancient history. That's true. And unfortunately, it seems that the American uh, school system doesn't really teach much about what the United States actually does uh, in Latin America. That, that's that's right. I, I always remember one one student of mine when we went over the this these issues of the U.S. involvement in Latin America, and he came to me afterwards, and he was just 
he, he felt that his his world had been transformed. He told me how, you know, he'd been taught that the U.S. had done all these good things in the rest of the world, and he'd never really heard of this, and it really opened his eyes to some of these things that, as you say, were, are not taught in school. Yeah, I think that uh, we're probably very attached to the narrative based on our our involvement in World War II and saving the world, and therefore we're not just good, but almost purely good because of that, Yeah, sort of resting on that accomplishment and uh, not really looking at the darker sides very much, both before and after. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I would agree. When we're talking about the involvement in uh, Central America and uh, the Caribbean, from what I've read, I mean, some of these interventions were really horrendously awful, not necessarily the intervention itself, but what it led to. And it's it's so much, uh, the legacy of that, it's still in the news. I mean, not that you can necessarily point exactly to the what causes what, but, you know, right now the major group seeking asylum are Haitians, and we were involved in, in Haiti, really had taken over the country for something like almost 40 years in the, uh, what, 50s, 60s, 70s, and most of the 80s, I think. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because I'll be honest that I know a lot less about Haiti than I do about the rest of the region. And and, and that's I think that's our fault as Latin Americanists. And, but fortunately, that's changing in the sense that we often don't pay attention to Haiti because it's not a Spanish-speaking country or Portuguese-speaking country. But more and more, we're beginning to realize how important Haiti is to, just to the general history of the region. And so, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I think there, too, we're sort of seeing some of the, the results of earlier policies. But but I, I also think it's I think it's important to make a distinction here between different stages of U.S. involvement and uh, the the sort of earlier when when this sort of truly imperial stage begins, which is with the Spanish American War in 1898, when the the U.S. Um, gets involved in the war and defeats Spain. Spain loses Cuba and Puerto Rico. The U.S. keeps um, Puerto Rico. Cuba becomes full, um, independent, but with a very important exception, which is the, what's called the um, what was called the Platt Amendment, and that was an amendment that was introduced by Senator Orville Platt, and that basically was added to the new Cuban constitution and allowed the U.S. to intervene directly in Cuban affairs if it was to protect the safety and create stability. There were a series of sort of reasons, you know, quote, reasons that they could do that. And so th th this, this really uh, created a situation and began an epoch in which the U.S. openly did intervene in many, many different countries, sending the Marines in. There, there was no covert aspects to those interventions. Which is more the exception, I think, of U.S. interventions in Latin America. They usually were covert, but this one wasn't. Well, no, at the time, that, that's why... Oh, at if, that time. If, yeah. And also Florida, too, right? Didn't the U.S. take Florida... That was earlier, though, and you know that was sort of part of an agreement that was reached. But I, I, basically, from 1898 to 1934, 
there were actually 34 different U.S. interventions in central in um, in the Caribbean, Central America, and uh, Mexico as well. So it was it was very open U.S. policy to intervene, and it was referred to as gunboat diplomacy uh, at the time. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was sort of one of the heroes of this whole process, and what, but what's interesting, I think, is that. And it's, I think it's important to keep this in mind. There were also groups within the countries that welcomed U.S. intervention for the sake of stability, because th there was a lot of political instability, and often specific, particularly conservative parties saw U.S. intervention as something positive, where they could bring stability and that that would be good for business. Because at, at the end of the day, a lot of that was really one of the underlying reasons for all of these interventions was because the U.S. had economic interests in the region and wanted to preserve those interests. And I imagine you had business interests in the country that was being intervened in as well. So you had kind of the, the, the players who were yes. uh, calling the shots were not the general population of either country. Well, it would have been at that point, it would have been the elites in those countries, and uh, which were mainly landowning um, elites. For example, in Cuba, when, when after the Spanish leave, the U.S. begins to buy up a lot of sugar plantations and has huge interests in Cuba. Hershey's, uh, for example, had plantations in Cuba. That's where this is sort of a complex process because in U.S. involvement wasn't, I, I don't think you can just say it was all bad, especially at that time. You know, I think we need to distinguish that from the next stage, which is the Cold War stage, where there was this the, the issue of communism. And that's where things get much more aggressive and violent, as you mentioned. So before we get into that, I just wanted to talk about the intervention before that, which is, of course, by Spain itself. And my understanding... Oh, you mean much earlier. Much earlier, I meant. Yeah, yeah. sorry, that's what I meant. Uh, that the Spanish involvement in the Americas took a different style than the English. The English, it seems to me that it was kind of like establishing outposts and claiming territory, and the, the natives were... Uh, either ignored or seen as a nuisance or pushed out of the way, and, and uh, not a lot of mixing, not a lot of intermarrying with them. Whereas in Spain, the, the men came over as conquerors and married uh, native uh, wives, and it was mainly for the exploitation of resources, you know, especially silver and other things like that. It was really almost like an enslavement situation of forcing uh, indigenous people to, or I guess mestizos also, to work the mines. Well, it wasn't actually specifically enslavement, and that's one of the interesting things when you start looking at the Spanish colonization, because the the Christianization aspect of it was also tremendously important to the Spanish monarch. And in fact, there there were a lot of different power groups involved. And in in some ways, interestingly enough, the Spanish monarchy acted a little bit as a check on the conquistadores, who probably left to their own devices would have just enslaved and exploited the native populations. However, a series of laws were created called the Laws of the Indies in 1542 that established all sorts of protections for the indigenous population and actually held people accountable. So, for example, Juan de Oñate, who was here in New Mexico and who did awful things um, to the Acoma people, was actually put on trial in Spain for for having done that and you know it doesn't reduce the 
sort of horror of what he did, but I think I think it's interesting to know sort of the whole story as well. That there were some limits and moral limits. It wasn't hundred uh, percent pure exploitation by all the powers that be. And I think that's one of the differences with the U.S. that the the political framework was different because the Spanish king considered the indigenous people of the Americas subjects, and therefore therefore human yeah in fact there was a whole debate about whether they were human or not and the the, the side that said they were human won out <laughs> which also seems incredible but the relationship to the native american populations here is very different in that they were at the marge they were sort of outside of the settlements where here they were integrated into society and this doesn't mean that they that there wasn't a great deal of exploitation, but I think it's just a very different framework and a very different frame of mind. And in fact, often often you see indigenous and mestizo peoples very quickly learning how to use those laws on their behalf. And you see lawsuits over land, indigenous communities, you know, suing to protect their lands and and so forth. So it's 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 actually a much more complex picture than one might think originally. Another thing to keep in mind is that indigenous societies were also hierarchical, and so it wasn't just sort of one group of indigenous people. I mean, in addition to the fact that we're talking about people with very different languages and very different cultures that all get kind of put under the umbrella of indigenous, but there were also class hierarchies. And so you get indigenous aristocrats actually very quickly wanting to sort of take Spanish nobility titles and try to get the privileges within the new Spanish colonial system. So, you know, I think, I think that's, I think that's one of the problems of, I guess, perhaps the way the, the, if I can make a generalization, the USC is Latin America, that it, it's seen in very sort of binary terms and very simplistic terms, whereas the reality, as usual, is, is very much more complex. Mm-hmm. If I just was uh, thinking about indigenous uh, relations with, with indigenous in, in Latin America versus the United States, and I, I imagine this is probably true of other countries as well, but I know in Mexico, most people are descended from mestizos and they have roots both in the conqueror and the conquered which i think most even uh daughters of the revolution americans wouldn't say that you know they're trace them their lineages back even though they i'm sure that there's also there, there's a lot more mestizaje or <laughs> mixture here in the u.s than we acknowledge and i think it's partly because we don't really think about that category very much we 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 have sort of divided things up. You're either one thing or another. Right, and a kind of obsession with racial purity, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. But the but the mestizaje, what's interesting in Latin America, I think one thing also to keep in mind is just the nature of these indigenous populations. The populations were much smaller here, the ones that the British found. Whereas, you know, you're talking about empires w- with millions and millions of people in Mexico and Peru. And so the indigenous people always far, far, by far outnumber the Europeans. And that I think that demographic sort of reality is something that one also has to keep in mind when thinking about the way the interaction between these different groups. But the, 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 Sp- the Spanish crown, in fact, didn't like mestizaje. They, in fact, wanted to keep things separate Spaniards Indians but very quickly they had to well it actually it took them a 
a while actually to come to terms with the reality of mestizaje, but that did very quickly become the reality. Mestizaje meaning mix, the mixture of different of different groups. Right, and my understanding is that in in Central America or maybe all of Latin America, the only country with a majority, a large majority uh, indigenous is Guatemala, and that's also the country that's had the most uh, or one of the most uh, unrest and violence, uh, particularly toward uh, indigenous that's, yeah. people. Yeah, just yesterday you pointed me in the direction of a podcast from This American Life. Uh, it was the May 25th, 2012 episode about... Uh, Dos Erres Massacres. Dos Erres Massacres. Uh, yeah, I looked up what Erres means, Erres, uh, which I'm not sure what the symbolism is in there, but I guess there's a before and after, the era before the massacre and the era after. Uh, it was really uh, very difficult to listen to. Uh, there were, you know, warnings at the beginning of the podcast. You know, if you have any young children, you're not going to want to listen to this. And even without young children, you may not want to listen to this. But just a really heartbreaking tragedy. Um, and then hearing that this uh, massacre of this village by the government, supported by the United States, or at least the government was not necessarily the action, happened in 600 villages. Yeah, and just really, really. Uh, so why didn't I know about this? I knew a little bit about it, but you know, it's like it really kind of brings it home when you hear about one particular case like that. Yeah, and and I, I think that's where you start to realize, and and it forces you to sort of think of what the consequences are of our actions in other parts of the world, because this falls under a whole new category of intervention in Latin America that begins with the Cold War and begins in 1947. Well, uh, and, and the first of these interventions was actually in Guatemala in 1954. And it was actually quite an open intervention. There, 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 there was not as much a covert part of it in that pe people knew quite well that the U.S. was involved in, in this. But in the, what's what's interesting is that what in the, in the 1940s after the after World War II, Guatemala is sort of beginning to modernize, and they they turn to democracy after sort of being under dictatorships for a long time. Uh, they they elect two reformist governments, um, one in 1944, the other one in 1950. And one of the things that these reformist governments begin to do is to try to deal precisely with this indigenous population that had lost land. And so they they try to implement land reform. And uh, the, the name of the president was Jacobo Arbenz. And, and land reform means uh, nationalizing the land or taking it back from U.S. corporations? Yes. But there were... Um, it wasn't sort of just take all of the land. The, there were there were certain rules to it. The the biggest landowner was United Fruit Company, which was a U.S. company that produced bananas that many people have probably heard of. And the the the, uh, the idea was actually not to take all of their land, but to take parts of their land that weren't being used. Now, the company claimed that this was land that they weren't using because it was because of the rotations and so forth. They were keeping it fallow to then. Um, planted, but regardless of the of the details, yes, they were going to lose a lot of land, and so at that point, you have the U.S. intervening quite clearly on behalf of 
of a large multinational U.S. company to basically protect its economic interests. Right. And we tend to think of corporations as having become really powerful somewhat recently, but it's, you know, this is, what, 70 years ago. Yeah. And they already had enough power to really basically determine U.S. policy because there's really no other reason. Well, I shouldn't say no other reason. There was also the, the Cold War reason, which is that uh, anything that could be seen as communist-leaning, even if there was not necessarily a relationship yet with the Soviet Union, but there could be, you know, if it's a, if it's a leftist government. Well, and that became the excuse. And, 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 and the, the, you can sort of see the level of interconnection between government and private business because the Dulles brothers, um, who were the heads, and I, I can never get straight which was which was which, but one was the head of the CIA and one was the, I want to say the Secretary of State, uh, in any case, they had very high positions in the government, and they were also tied to the United Fruit Company. So there were people high up in the government that were on the board of the United Fruit Company. And but what's interesting in this case is that is as you mentioned is that now you have the sort of communist scare, right? And if you remember the '50s and the McCarthy era here, I mean, this was not this was something that was going on here in the U.S. And they found some very sort of slim connection because there had been an arms shipment from Czechoslovakia and they sort of used that as an excuse to somehow claim that this was becoming a Soviet sort of satellite in the Americas and and and, and there was a huge propaganda campaign uh, they even created a fake uh, news uh, agency to feed sort of fake news to the US press at the time and so they really orchestrated it in a way to try to justify this as an anti-communist intervention. Yeah, and the the irony of uh, you know supporting a dictator so that they don't get taken over by the communists. I mean, you know, we're we're supposedly promoting democracy uh, around the world, and and yet we're squelching democracy for the sake of business interests in order to. But the, the pretenses are, are really quite stunning. Once the Cold War started, there ceased to be any sort of pretense of supporting democracy. It was quite clear that the U.S. was very willing to support any government that declared itself anti-communist and that was willing to fight anything that resembled communism. How did that uh, change? Uh, you know, for instance, in, in Guatemala, it's, it was uh, through the uh, I guess through the eighties. Um, I mean, I, I visited there in '93 which is, I think, after the Civil War had ended, but uh, on an outing with my wife and two-year-old son, the bus uh, had to stop because there were soldiers on the road because a presidential candidate had just been assassinated there the day before. Uh, so things were not calm completely yet. Um, so how exactly did things at least start to turn around, and, and or, or how turned around are they, You know, given that we're still having a refugee crisis from Guatemala and, and nearby countries. Well, and that gets into a whole other <laughs> complicated subject in terms of what the reasons are for that. But it, it, interestingly, th there, there's one factor that, that wasn't really a factor back then, and, and it actually has to do with, with, uh, with, with climate change and with ecological problems that are actually affecting agriculture and making it difficult for small farmers there. So uh, in, in addition to a lot of 
political instability. Now there are also issues having to do with the drug presence and drug cartels. That's not something that was present back in the in the 90s. I mean, in the 90s, the war came to an end because there was a peace accord. Tens of thousands of people had been killed, disappeared in the process. And Guatemala does move toward democratic governments. But uh, that doesn't mean that there's been stability. Stability has been um, has been achieved. And I think, I think one of the things that we have to think about from the perspective of the U.S., I think this is a difficult thing to think about because it involves looking, taking a very, very long view. But in in the case of Guatemala, we, we did interrupt a, a process of reform in 1954. And I think that there was a very long set of consequences to that interruption because we, we sort of helped to steer Guatemala in a much more violent direction. In, in the sense that land reform was reversed, the needs of indigenous people were not met by the military governments, guerrilla groups arose, armed groups that challenged the government as a result of this, and then terrible violence with counterinsurgency against these armed groups, and counterinsurgency where the Guatemalan military received U.S. training. And so, for example, one of the ways the U.S. sort of appears in the background in that podcast that you mentioned about the Dos Herres massacre is that a lot of that training, that counterinsurgency training, was given by the U.S. And that happens in other parts of Latin America. You know, again, I think this is something where, where maybe it's up to us to connect the dots, but you know, what does it mean when tens of thousands of, of civilians are massacred and we're the ones that are training the military that massacre them? Yeah, it, it raises the question about blame, like who to blame, how much blame to ascribe and whether to get caught up in, in that or if instead it makes sense to uh, just try to understand it all and, and uh, bring everybody who's responsible into the conversation it reminds me a little bit about the situation of South Africa where there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The idea being that in order to move forward and not go down a spiral of violence, that there needs to be some kind of recognition of the past rather than just saying, let's just forgive and forget, which I don't know if there's been anything similar in any of the Latin American countries. Oh yes, there has. There have been truth and reconciliation commissions through and and throughout because this this sort of Cold War violence, let's call it. And I was I'm teaching a class on the Cold War. I tell my students the Cold War was not a Cold War in Latin America. It was a hot war. People died, and the the violence of these of the 70s and 80s, and even into the um, into the 90s is connected to the Cold War to the persecution of groups that were considered communist sometimes they were often and perhaps argentina is the best known example the military went after anybody who was even suspected of having any connection to any sort of leftist group and did pretty horrible things in terms of torturing and disappearing 
civilians in, in, in their countries. And this, this was a, I, I think it's fair to say this was a Cold War conflict. It wasn't, I don't, I don't think that the, those actions can be attributed directly to the United States, but the United States knew about them and in, in many cases supported governments that were doing that. So you were going to mention some uh, countries where there have been truth and reconciliation commissions? Well, for example, Peru is a country that's had a truth and reconciliation commission. In fact, uh, the, the Peruvian one was very innovative. They they would build on each other. In other words, the experience of one country actually helped an, another. And the, 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 the Peruvian one, which was after a long civil war with a group called the Shining Path, which was a Maoist group that wanted to take over the country. And what was unusual about that commission, which was in the early 2000s, was that there was actual recorded testimony by people who were able to speak in public hearings. And there was a sense during these public hearings of a sort of catharsis with the victims of violence being able to speak publicly about the things that they had gone through. And that hadn't been the case in some of the earlier Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. But uh, I, I know Guatemala has had one. Argentina also had one. Uh, in fact, it's published. It's called Never Again, Nunca Mas. Uh, and it has a record of all the things that happened under the military. Chile, I'm, I believe, has had one as well. So they were pretty widespread uh, after the end of this cycle of violence. Well, since you mentioned your home country of Peru, uh, let's segue now to talking about your recent book about Aya de la Torre. Uh, it's re really a remarkable life. It, it, in the in, I guess introductory pages, uh, you mentioned that uh, he was perhaps the most important uh, revolutionary uh, figure after uh, Fidel Castro and um, Che Guevara later on. Yeah, but but that he never he never assumed power himself, which is maybe the reason, and also because he lived a long life and didn't become a martyr, then maybe he's not as quite as as famous. I think it helps. I think if you if you die young, you know, like Kennedy and like Marilyn Monroe, I think it it helps. Right, but his life encompassed uh, most of the twentieth century, and he was in, uh, in, in the leader of the uh, APRA. Uh, movement for over with over 50 years. I mean, it's really a remarkable life, uh, and it really, uh, even though he never took power, uh, his involvement's really. Uh, I think if you understand his life, you understand probably a lot about Peruvian history and Latin American history in general. I would I would say so. And what's interesting is that, of course, no, I don't think any, most people haven't heard of him at, or uh, here in the U.S. But in, interestingly, in the fifties, they would have because the U.S. sort of latched onto him at the time as as somebody who was fighting against dictatorship in Latin America. And uh, at the time, he did have an interesting life. In in, in fact. He was persecuted, and the reason he was well-known in the early 50s is because he had taken refuge in the Colombian embassy in Peru because he, w he was seeking political asylum, but the process was blocked, and so he ended up living there for four or five years, somewhat like um, Julian Assange. I mean, right, right. You know, we've had some cases like that today that become famous. So he sort of became famous at that 
you know, more internationally famous at the time because he was living in the Colombian embassy and the, you know, the, the, the government had tanks outside and it was sort of a whole saga. And in fact, Life magazine, you know, published a whole article of his that, 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 uh, the detail to the whole experience. Yeah, so he he managed to uh, be part of the political system at times, be exiled from the political system, be have his life threatened, having to be, be in, and not just in the Colombian embassy, but there also were other periods of his life where he was in, fleeing from house to house. Correct. Yeah, uh, in Lima. Yeah, uh, staying one step ahead of the authorities, disguising himself as a as a woman. Yeah, that's that that that's right. For and for for quite a long time, yeah, <laughs> for quite a long time, from 1933 to 1945. So that that was, you know, over a decade of uh, this this period uh, in in hiding. And oh, there's so much there's so much to say about him. I don't know where to start. And one of the uh, kind of thumbnail summaries you made is that he made four different kinds of contributions and or at least in four different roles his role as an ideologue you know spreading the the word uh, the the values and vision of apra uh, which uh, stands for the american popular revolutionary alliance at least that's what it stands for in english something similar in spanish and uh so he was an ideologue who was spreading these ideas throughout latin america also as a propagandist so not just thinking up the ideas, but actually being a, a speaker and, and promoting these ideas uh, as an institution builder. So building up the party and, and uh, I guess, uh, trying to enter into the political fold. And even though he didn't uh, succeed at becoming president, his successor did. And then as a pragmatic politician, I guess with the emphasis on pragmatic, that in order to to have any uh, chance of survival, he had to compromise, uh, sometimes so much so that his, he had detractors who were saying that he sold out. Pretty much, yeah. So it's a very complicated figure, which I think is maybe what makes him so appealing as a research topic. Yeah, and maybe more as a researcher. I, th- I think sometimes, you know, if, if we want to have more of a sort of soundbite or a sort of a shorter version, it's it's easier with somebody who's somebody like Che Guevara, who's not, who who in some ways doesn't compromise, and so in some ways he's sort of simpler to grasp. I think somebody like Gaia is more complex, and you have to deal with aspects of him that you may not find appealing for precisely that reason. In saying, well, you know, he he was a revolutionary, but then he started sort of negotiating with the conservatives and so forth. But who knows? I mean, maybe maybe that's actually a good lesson for us these days where everything is so divided that it, that it is a good idea to, to try to compromise. <laughs> right. And, and he also compromised in the relationships with the United States. Yes. I mean, he, he courted a certain amount of support, which uh, must have been extremely controversial back in Peru. Yeah. His critics will bring that up as... as sort of a very negative aspect that that and that you know he had criticized the United States but then didn't but but then decided to embrace the US it's important to think of sort of the stages of people's lives because it's one thing to be a student and an activist it's another thing to be a presidential candidate it's another thing to be a president. In other words, you're dealing with very different circumstances and different pressures. Yeah, different pressures. And so 
he lived rather a remarkable life during the 20s because he traveled so much. He was sort of at the scene in these places where huge transformations were going on. Or Germany, just, just as the Nazis had taken power, for instance. Yeah, he was in Germany just as the Nazis were taking power. He was in the Soviet Union just when Lenin died. Uh, he was in Mexico right after the Mexican Revolution. He was in Great Britain when the labor movement was active and there was a big general strike. So he he really sort of lived these transitional moments. And one of the, the reasons that he's interesting and and as an ideologue is because he sort of took aspects of all of these and cobbled them together saying Latin America doesn't have to follow a European model. We have to sort of create our own model of development and revolution. And so I, that's one of the things that makes him unique. The, the second aspect of it is that he was a very good propagandist. And so he was able to sort of summarize his ideas and to get them out there. I think he would have loved the internet uh, because, uh, you know, and he, he probably would have been great on, on Twitter. I mean, he really had a, a, a passion and, and an ability for doing that. And getting your ideas out is very, very important. Yeah, I guess that's an unusual person is both an intellectual and a uh, popularizer of ideas. I mean, he was able to talk to common people, it sounds like. Yeah. And and prob and probably the second one is more important. A lot of people would say that his his intellectual ideas are actually not that great; that they don't really stand on on, on their own and and scrutiny. But but put together with this ability at at propaganda, they they are very powerful because he was able to get these ideas out and they influenced a lot of different political movements in Latin America. And I understand he was a very much a people person, very charming. And of course, that goes very well with being a propagandist. And a... I've talked to people who have who knew him, and they, they said that he was just an incredible conversationalist, that you could sit and talk to him for hours, and he would sort of just enrapture you with his ideas. Right, and just to give a, a sense of uh, the time frame, he was born in 1895, and he died in 1979, so he really uh, was... Yeah, he covers a good chunk of the 20th century. Right, and, and he was involved in, in you know, more than half of that life was involved in politics. So it's a, it's a really, it is a very, it's a, it is a fascinating life. And he he's you know he starts out sort of as a Marxist revolutionary because there was a lot of Marxism in his view in, in the way that he saw the world in terms of class conflict and tries to create a sort of pan Latin American political movement arguing that Latin America needed to be united in order to confront the power of the United States and and then eventually becomes much more of a fighter for democracy against dictatorship ne never is able to get to the presidency and there was actually there were there were explicit laws in Peru in the 1930s and 40s preventing APRA from running a presidential candidate in other words they were laws written to prevent him from coming to right, power so really singled out yeah yeah he was that much of a threat yeah and then event eventually 
he ends his life during an interesting transition in Peru from military government to civilian rule as the head of a constituent assembly that wrote a new constitution for the country. And at the, by that point, he was sort of regarded as, as a kind of elder statesman in, in Peru. And then eventually it's his protege, Alan Garcia, who comes to power in in 1985 and then but by that time he had um he had passed away so we'll talk about alan garcia in just a minute but um i guess one of the speculations about why he was not able to become president was because of his uh purported sexual orientation as as uh, as gay yeah and he was he was um allegedly gay and there you know this this is always something that's hard to deal with as a historian in terms of well how how do you find um actual you know proof of something as intimate as this but it's it seems clear from from his life uh from the fact that he never married which would have been unusual at 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 that time for a politician uh as well as a lot of other evidence and and this was actually used against him when he did eventually campaign for president in the 1960s. And so the... So these became open accusations. Yeah, yeah. They they, they, they did become open accusations. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's an important issue. And, but I think it's also an... In, it's, it, it also can be an inspiring issue in that, you know, cer- certainly it was not something that he could identify with openly at at the time given the times and given the well the prejudices at the at, that were so um that that continue today but were that were that were much more overt then at the time but i i think thinking about the fact that 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 he was gay and that he got so far as a politician, I think, can be inspiring in terms of uh, right. Although closeted, of course, yeah. If assuming he was, yeah. Just wanted to clarify something about his relationship with uh, courting in the United States uh, support. Was he actually courting the support by the U.S. government, or is, is it more that they were supporters, uh, high high ranking supporters, uh, whether in the government or or not in the government? were sympathetic because there's a difference yeah it, it, it was both he he uh he had friends among intellectuals and journalists here journalist whose name was carlton beals who wrote a great deal about about leftist movements in latin america back in the 30s and 40s and he uh had a great appreciation for ayala torre he also knew professors uh in different universities, one who actually wrote a book about him. So he had connections at, I guess, the level of what would, what what one would call civil society. But he also had connections with the U.S. embassy and in in Peru, and tried to cultivate connections at the level of the government, and very directly, especially once the Cold War started sort of promoted himself and his party as an ally of the US in the fight against communism. Right. So there were there were direct government connections as well. And that's a remarkable transformation just in itself. Someone who had been to the Soviet Union Union and was uh, enamored of Marxism to then be seen as a credible um 
ally against communism. That's that's quite a talented <laughs> talented feat uh, to do that. Although I, I think from 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 what I read in your book, it sounds like the, the trust was never that deep. It was, there was always some ambivalence toward him by the, by the U.S. government. Yes, and and. So, you know, some some of, some of it may have just had to do with the fact that he wasn't in power. In other words, if he had come to power, you know, the chances are that they they would have been happy to work with him. But um, but on the issue of of communism, he rejected communism quite early on in the 1920s because here here there's sort of a fine distinction between marxism and communism in the sense of marxism just as a method or as a way of viewing the world in terms of class conflict but he distinguished himself he he separated himself from soviet communism and in fact he saw the soviets as uh, at the time as not really understanding latin america at all and uh, as latin america not actually being ready for communism yet so that was sort of part of his. Could you explain that? In what way would they not have been ready? Well, because with with Mar Marxism in Marxism, there are these very clearly defined stages. So you go from feudalism to capitalism to communism, and you're not you're not allowed to to skip a, a stage, right? Well, <laughs> no, I, I I I guess not. Of course, it never really worked that way, um, because you know, curiously. Communism ends up taking hold in much more agrarian societies like China and, and, and Russia rather than in Europe. But that's that's a whole other story. But what, what's what's interesting is that he 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 actually turned. Lenin said that imperialism was the last stage of capitalism, and Ayala Torre sort of turned that on its head and said that imperialism was actually the first stage of capitalism in Latin America. That and in other words, in a nutshell, he said Latin America had to go through capitalism before getting to communism. And so the project right now wasn't to try to create a communist society, but it was rather to promote a capitalism that was beneficial to Latin America. And in that sense, he's actually, if you if you read it carefully, quite moderate from the very beginning in his ideas. Mm -hmm. That is very pragmatic. Yeah, very to, very pragmatic. You have to create wealth before you can distribute it. Yeah, he was very pragmatic. I mean, he recognized the importance of the United States. He recognized that for a lot of development, the U, the Latin America needed U.S. capital because there wasn't a lot of capital in Latin America. I mean, the capitalists were elsewhere. All he said is, we need to have a strong national state so that that capital investment benefits our population and isn't just all sort of extractive capitalism that doesn't leave us anything. So that was that was his argument and I think it's an interesting argument even today because there's a lot of that still going on in in um in Latin America and in fact this conversation is being had in Peru right now because uh, right now there's a leftist government in in place and uh, they're talking about nationalizing certain resources like gas and so forth and so you know this debate as to whether the resources of a country are benefiting the people of that country or are they just being extracted to some degree continues yeah and you see that in uh, western europe as well where my understanding is that norway nationalized their fossil fuel industry and they were able to redistribute their income to, to the population at large whereas the netherlands uh, did the opposite and enriched a small number of people instead.
well, we have just uh, uh, like maybe in a, a couple of minutes left. Could you just do a quick summary as a kind of a coda about Alan Garcia? What, what, how did he do as uh, the first and only president uh, of the opera movement and I, in each of his terms? He had two non-successive uh, terms as president. Well, the, fir- the first the the first one he, he ex- uh, well let me say first in some ways he sort of exhibited the the pragmatism of his mentor in that his first government was a ver- was a was much more on the left and in fact at one point he tries to nationalize the banking system in Peru economically it was a disaster his government ended with hyperinflation and it, it's a testament, I guess, to his political skill that he was able to get himself reelected after that first very, very economically disastrous government. And his second government from 2006 to 2011, I hope I'm getting that, that right, was much more to the right. And from what I've read, I mean, the economy was booming during that second presidency. Yeah. You know, how much a president of any country is really responsible for their economic uh, situation is really uh, questionable. But he presided over, I think it was, there was a faster expansion of the economy than, than in China at that time. That's correct, yeah. Uh, but then uh, his life ended with a corruption uh, scandal after he was out of power, I think, right? Yeah, he p- people had been accusing him of corruption at just about every stage. Um, and he, he ended up when when they went to to arrest him for this he ended up taking his own life in 2019 it's pretty recently yeah but what's interesting is that apra has functioned both as a long lasting institution in the sense that it was a strong political party but it also has depended on a charismatic leader and Alan was not as much of a charismatic leader as Aya de la Torre. However, he did capture the imagination of people. And an interesting indication of that is that today there are a lot of people in Peru who think that he is not dead. <laughs> that he somehow wow. that he was too skillful for that, and that he that he must have somehow staged his killing, uh, excuse me, he staged his death, mm-hmm. and that he somehow is alive out there somewhere with Elvis, no, no doubt, right? <laughs> I would hope so. In fact, he played the guitar. He was a, he was a good guitar player, although he played ranchera, so it'd be kind of, I don't know, what kind of band they'd be forming, but it might be an interesting hybrid. Anyway, Inigo Garcia Bryce, uh, uh, history professor at NMSU, a uh, specialist in Latin America. Thank you so much for coming back on Delving In. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.